Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. If you're not sure where Jonah is located, it is in the final section of the Old Testament, the minor prophets section of Scripture, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It's found in between Obadiah and, and Micah, and if that doesn't help you, then just find Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and just start flipping backwards, okay? Until you get to Jonah. That'll help, you, that'll help you get there. When thinking about the book of Jonah, those of us who grew up in the church, our minds often go to Sunday school, right? The, the stories and the pictures and the activity pages that we did that uh, depict Jonah probably in the belly of a, of a big fish. And that's all many know about that story. Uh, they kind of think about, uh, they, they picture it sort of like Pinocchio and the big whale, right? The cartoon there. But when you begin studying the book, you learn that the story of Jonah is so much more than a story about a man and a fish. It is a story that is filled with great truths about God. For example, in Jonah chapter 1, we learn that Jonah is a book about a sovereign God. The story begins by God coming to the prophet Jonah and calling for him to go to Nineveh and preach against the sins of the Ninevites. How does Jonah respond? Many of you know, not in a good way, right? He gets up and he heads in the opposite direction toward Tarshish. He Aboards a ship there, he, he gets aboard a ship and he begins to set out to sea in the opposite direction. And God hurls a great wind on the sea, brings about a great storm to stop this ship from moving any further. And the men on the ship, fearing for their own lives, they cry out to their own gods. They try to lighten their load to get through the storm. And they wake Jonah because he's sleeping. And they call for him to call out to his God. They cast lots and discover that, that Jonah is the one to blame for the terrible storm. So they, they go to him. They learn he's running from God. And basically, why have you done this, right? They inquire about what they're to do. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and you will be spared. They don't want to do that at first. They try to steer through the storm, but they cannot. And look at what happens, Jonah chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish, to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And that's chapter 1. And the lesson to be learned of God, again, in Jonah 1, is that he is a sovereign God. He is sovereign everywhere over all things and over everyone. He tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. He's planning to do a work 
amongst the Ninevites. Jonah knows that and doesn't want that to happen. So Jonah heads in the opposite direction. Jonah shows some poor theology as well. We're told twice he is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, the wording there means flee from him in his temple and from his presence there with his people and from the the plan that he's trying to do. But twice we're told that he flees from the presence of the Lord. But what Jonah learns the hard way is that place doesn't exist. David reminds us of that. In Psalm 139, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God shows Jonah this very truth, that there is no place where we can go away from the presence of God. Jonah flees in the opposite direction of where God is calling for him to go, and God meets him where he is at sea and hurls a great wind and storm on that sea, and Jonah ends up in that sea, and then God appoints a great fish to swallow him up. God is sovereign everywhere, over all things, and over every one. In Jonah chapter 2, we learn that in addition to God being a sovereign God, God is also a saving God. God. While Jonah being tossed into the sea is a picture of death and judgment, the fish that God appoints for Jonah is a picture of God's salvation. We don't often think of it in that way, but that's what the wording in the book tells us. The fish is God's instrument of salvation. Notice the descriptions Jonah uses when praying to God from the belly of the fish. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. That's a picture of death. But notice what Jonah says in Jonah 2, 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Skip down to verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Remember at the end of chapter 2, God not only appoints a fish to swallow Jonah up to save him, but also causes that fish to vomit Jonah back out onto land. God is a sovereign God. He is a saving God. We also learn that He is a patient, merciful God of grace. We learn that in Jonah chapter 3. While Jonah failed at first to do what God had called for him to do, tried to run from God, God redirected Jonah by way of a, a, a big fish, had him swallowed up, spit back out on land, then called for him once again to go to Nineveh. And while the Ninevites were this godless group of people, they were, they were ungodly in every way, they had been great enemies of God and His people, God sent Jonah to preach against them and against their ways, and we learn in chapter 3 that they repent. It's one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament. We're told in Jonah chapter 3 verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, chapter 3. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Is that not amazing? 
the king of the capital of Assyria, the king of one of the most godless, most barbaric, most immoral, most idolatrous cities in all the world, got up off of his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes and called for a citywide fast and the repentance of all the Ninevites. What an amazing work of God. And and notice their hope that we see here. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Who knows, they say. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They don't know that he's going to do that, but they repent anyways in hopes that he will. In hopes that turning from their sin, God would turn his wrath away from them. That's their hope. Notice what happens, verse 10 of chapter 3. Notice how God responds. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That is the third time in this story, by the way, that someone set against God, cries out to God, and is saved by God. We see that happen again and again. Notice, first, the men on the boat who worship false gods. They cry out to the true God in the midst of the storm, and he saves them at sea. Second, Jonah, on the run from God, drowning in the sea, cries out to God. We learned that in Jonah 2.2. And God responds and saves him. And here, the wicked Ninevites, set against God, set against his people, cry out to God, and we're told that he turned his wrath away from them. God is a saving God, amen? He is a patient God, a merciful God, a gracious God. Well, today we're in Jonah 4. We're going to be focusing in on this last chapter of this great book. And what we learn from Jonah 4 is that in addition to God being a sovereign, salvific, patient, merciful God, God is a missional God. Now, why is this important? that we know this. Why is this key, this truth, important for us to grasp? There are several reasons we we see as we examine the life of this reluctant prophet named Jonah from Jonah 4. The first reason we learn from Jonah's bad example is because we can be prejudiced. Why do we need to know God is a missional God? Because we can be prejudiced. Now, before you get all bent out of shape over that, let me explain what I mean. Look at Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're told, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What's the it here? What, what is the it that displeased Jonah? It's referring back to what was previously said. Chapter 3, verse 10, look at it again. When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. Jonah had finally obeyed the Lord. He went to Nineveh, preached to the Ninevites. In response, they repent. God relents, turns his wrath away from them. And in response to God doing that, Jonah gets angry. Chapter 4, verse 1, we're told he wasn't just a little bit upset. No, we're told this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, that's mad, right? Isn't that amazing? Think about what we have here. 
In chapter 3, we have on record one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament. One, one of the greatest movements in the Old Testament. One of the greatest transformations, right? But it doesn't last, but it takes place at this time. You have the king of Nineveh, the king of the capital of Assyria, this king of this powerful, warlike, barbaric, godless city, now covered in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. You have Ninevites from the top down repenting of their sin and turning to God. You have this amazing work of God here. Then you have Jonah mad about it. What's his deal? What's his problem? I mean, have you ever known of a missionary upset when revival is taking place in an area where he or she is ministering? You ever heard of that happening? That's unheard of, right? Why is Jonah angry? Why is he put out with God for extending his mercy and compassion to the Ninevites? Why did he run away in the first place? The answer is very, very simple. It's because of the Ninevites. It's because of who they were. They were some of the most godless, heartless, merciless, barbaric people in the scriptures. Just listen to this quote that I came across in a commentary on them. It said, Pyramids of human heads marked the path of the conqueror. Boys and girls were burned alive. Men were impaled. This is what they did to people. I read where Ninevites and uh, the other Assyrians, when they went to battle and they conquered an enemy, another kingdom, a nation, they would take the heads of their enemies and they would stack them in a pyramid to celebrate their victory. Can you imagine that? That's the kind of people they were. They didn't value human life at all. And Jonah knew how barbaric and brutal they were firsthand because they were great enemies of Israel. The Assyrians had slaughtered many Jews and, and, and many when they, you, you know, they read Jonah and they think, man, Jonah's got to get over his hangups. He needs to be more willing to go and reach the lost and do the work of God. Let me tell you, though it was wrong, for him to be disobedient, running from God, being angry with the work God had done in Nineveh, it would be difficult for many of us in Jonah's shoes to not share his perspective. Verse 2, And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He knew what God was up to. He knew they were going to be spared, and he didn't want that. Look at how upset he is, verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is saying, I, I am so mad. I am so upset. I literally want to die. And again, I think if many of us are, are honest, we can see where Jonah is coming from here. Maybe not mad enough to die, but I think we can relate to Jonah's anger here. I mean, what if God called for you to be a missionary to those who killed hundreds in Sri Lanka on Easter, bombed churches on Easter Sunday. What if God called for you to go to them? Many of you would be thinking, when's the, when's the ship to Tarshish leaving? If you're honest, 
I mean, Jonah would have rather gone anywhere than Nineveh. He would have rather died than see them repent. And in many ways, we are just like Jonah. There are certain individuals and groups that are easy to pray for and minister to and others who are not. There are some we would love to see come to Christ. Others, we, if we're being honest, many of us would love to see cower before him in judgment. If many of us were honest, we would have to admit that. But this book reminds us of this timeless truth we find throughout Scripture, and that is that our God is a gracious God. He is in the business of taking those who deny Him, those who are cynical and skeptical of Him, those who are adamantly opposed to Him, transforming them and using them for His purposes. Believers, that's our story. That's our story. But when applied to the Ninevites, it's too much for Jonah. And it's a tough pill for many of us to swallow as well, but it's true. It's what God delights in doing. He's a missional God who delights in taking the broken down, the fallen, the disgusting, and redeeming them and restoring them and using them for his purposes. This is what he did for us. This is why God asked Jonah at the end of verse 3, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you well to be angry? Jonah, are you justified in being mad? Who are you to say who's deserving of me or not? Are you deserving of me, Jonah? Are we believers? Great truth in Scripture that we must be reminded of again and again is that sin is universal and it is the great equalizer of mankind. Not that all sin is the same in severity. It's not. That's why God gives differing degrees of punishment based upon the severity of sin in the Old Testament. God recognizes it. So should we. But it is the the great equalizer in that all of us are sinners deserving of judgment. We are all guilty before God. Though, Though many of us are not as bad as we could be, and though there are some folks that are worse than others, all of us are guilty before him and believers while God has saved us the salvation we have is in no way shape or form earned by you or by me it is unmerited undeserved therefore we have no right to say that one is more deserving of salvation than another because none of us deserve it if you get fair you get hell so do I judgment that's what we deserve because of our sin. And God tells us he's come to actually seek out those who are far from him. Bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. We learned that in Luke. Remember Luke 5.32? Jesus said, this is the reason I've come. He's got the religious leaders who aren't listening. And he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Believers, It's imperative that we remember who we were before God called us. We were dead in sin, enemies of God, undeserving of his mercy and grace, yet he saved us. And if we're going to be imitators of God, we must show this type of attitude toward others. Maybe 
you're here this morning and you're on the other end of that, you know you're undeserving, but you feel as if you're too far gone, past the point of return. Listen, as long as there is still life in your lungs, breath in your lungs, life in your bones, there is hope for you. And the reason I know that to be true is because I know who our God is from his word. He is a missional God who is in the business of transforming the hearts of the vilest of sinners who delights in taking the barbaric, the immoral, the criminal, and restoring and redeeming them for his purposes. So that's the first point that's important for us to remember when we learn that our God is a, a missional God. It's important for us to know because we have hang-ups with certain groups of people. We can be prejudiced, but we must remember who we were when God called us and changed us and go out and make him known to those who do not. Second reason it's important that we know that God is a missional God is because we are self-absorbed. We're taking a beating today, aren't we? It's good, though. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So notice it says Jonah went out of the city. Now my guess is he didn't simply walk out, he stormed out. He hated these people, couldn't stand watching them repent and be forgiven. So he storms out of the city. He goes and sits on a nearby hillside, makes a booth for himself there. And the reason he does this is because it was hot in Nineveh. It's modern-day Iraq, so it's a hot place. I saw the other day it was 120 degrees, probably a day like that. Guessing this is the kind of heat he's facing. He don't want to be exposed to that. He goes to the east of the city, goes up on a hillside, makes a booth for himself so he'll be protected from the heat. And we're told that as he sits in this booth, he is watching to see what will become of the city. Now, I agree with, with some credible commentators here that, that what's probably implied here is that Jonah is looking on maybe in hopes that the Ninevites will return to their evil ways and God will continue with this plan of bringing judgment. He's, he's sitting there watching, maybe waiting for God's fire to fall. And look at what happens, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed, there's that word again, a plant. He's sovereign, right? He sent a wind, appointed a fish, spoke to the fish. Here he appoints a plant. God is sovereign. Now the word, now, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So while Jonah is sitting in this booth on the hillside outside of Nineveh, waiting, maybe hoping they would return to their wicked ways, hoping that God would continue with his plan of punishing them, which eventually does happen. That's another book, by the way. Something interesting happens. We're told that God, the same God who appointed the storm and the fish, appoints a plant, comes up over Jonah, shades his head from the sun, and we're told that Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, don't just pass over that. Go back to verse 1. 
before you look at verse 6, chapter 4. We learn in verse 1, Jonah was exceedingly displeased because the Ninevites had repented and were spared God's wrath. Verse 6, we're told, he was exceedingly glad for a shade from the sun. How about that? Here here we learn that Jonah was one self-absorbed prophet. He could care less about the spiritual well-being of the Ninevites. In fact, he would love to see them and their city burn, but he was greatly concerned with whether or not he was protected from the sun. He, He had no interest in them being protected from God's wrath, yet he was greatly concerned with whether or not he had a shade over his face. Here's the point, and it's a, it's a hard one. We can be just like Jonah, can't we? The reason it's important for us to understand that God is a missional God is because we, like Jonah, have a tendency to be completely self-involved and self-absorbed. We tend to be more concerned with our own personal comforts than we are the spiritual condition of others. Now that hurts, but we need to hear it. We tend to prioritize individual luxuries over selfless service. Listen, God calls for us to be and do the opposite. Our God is a missional God. He is a God who has not remained removed from us, though He could have. Instead, he has become one of us in the person of Jesus in order to redeem us. He sought us and brought us believers into his family. And as believers, he calls for us to take part in this work. Though it's good for us to enjoy the comforts that God provides, we should not allow for these personal comforts to take priority over the mission that God has called for us to take part in. That's why it's important for us to know that God is a missional God. Final reason why we need to focus on God being a missional God is because many are in need. In the previous verse, we learned that God had added to Jonah's comfort on a hillside by appointing a plant to shade him from the hot sun. But notice how quickly this comfort goes away. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there it goes again, he is sovereign, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed, again, he's sovereign, a scorching east wind, and he appointed the sun, beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So we, we, we find here that, that God is not through teaching Jonah. The same God who appointed a storm and a fish and a plant now appoints a worm to attack the plant and a scorching east wind and the sun to scorch Jonah. While, while Jonah's sitting there waiting for God's wrath to come down on the Ninevites, God's wrath comes down on this shade plant instead, and it results in Jonah losing his comfortable shade, and once again, he throws a pity party. He says, kill me, God. I, I, would, I would rather die than sit out in this hot sun. And notice what God says, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you well 
to be angry for the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So notice Jonah is really angry here, right? This is the second time he was asked this, do you well to be angry? First time he just storms out of the city, right? He stays quiet. This time he fires back at God. He said, you bet I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Boy, he's mad, isn't he? And in response to Jonah's outburst, God gives the lesson of the plant. This is the main point of the chapter and really the main point of the book. Verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God is teaching Jonah a valuable lesson here. God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, you're so passionate about this plant. You're so passionate about being shaded from the sun. You're so passionate about your personal comforts. Shouldn't you be that passionate about Nineveh? Shouldn't you be passionate about the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue of these people? God is demonstrating to Jonah that they're on two different pages. He is showing Jonah their desires do not line up. He is showing Jonah, Jonah, my concern is for the nations. Your concern is for being comfortable. I'm concerned with the spiritual condition of the Ninevites. You are concerned with the shade of your face. My heart is for the lost. Your heart is for yourself. He's showing how out of whack Jonah's priorities are. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? And when he says great city, he says it multiple times. He's just talking about it's a populous place where tons of people are repenting. He's showing Jonah there are tons of people here who are lost and don't even know they are. There are hundreds of thousands of people in need of salvation, and you're going to come to me griping about a plant? Are you kidding me? He is really putting Jonah in his place and us alongside him, right? He's saying, Jonah, there are people who need me, and you're removed from them in your own little world, worried about a comfortable place to rest. I wonder how many of us have the same problem. How many of us are so self-absorbed and self-involved? How many of us are so consumed with life being easy and comfortable that we completely ignore the needs of hundreds around us and beyond who are lost and in desperate need of rescue? I wonder how many of us are like Jonah in our own little comfortable world, completely ignoring the needs of thousands of people in this city and in the surrounding areas who do not know their right hand from their left. And I know what some of you are thinking. There's a question coming to mind. It'll come to mind in the second service as well. Well, what's the church going to do about it? You know, that's a great question. Church, we're the church, right? You're the church. What are you going to do about it? Each and every week, you leave this place and enter into your mission field. You come in contact with people I've never met. You have influence with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers that I could never have. Many of them don't know their right hand from their left. What are you going to do about it? Stay removed 
from them, remain comfortable where you are, or are you going to be on mission for God? God is a missional God. He desires to be known and worshiped where he's not known and worshiped, and if that is not your desire, then your desires do not line up with God's. That was God's message to Jonah, and we need to hear it as well. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you may just now begin to realize you can't even make God known to others because you don't know him. Maybe it's finally dawned on you for the first time this morning that you're in the same boat as the Ninevites. Not that you're as wicked as they are, but you're in the same spiritual state, guilty before God because of your sinfulness. Let me give you a word from God's word. He wants to be known and worshipped by us, which is why he has gone to great lengths to forgive and restore us by sending his son. You see, God has chosen, like we said a moment ago, to not remain removed from us. He could have. He could have left us in our broken and, and fallen state. Scripture is clear that while he created us for him to live under his rule and reign for his glory, we set ourselves against him in our sin, and he could have remained removed from us, and he would have been just in doing so, but instead of staying removed from us, he condescended down to us, came down to our level, became one of us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. The creator of the universe, who put the sun in place, who knows the stars by name, who hurls a great wind on the sea, who tells a big fish what to do, who appoints a plant and a worm and a wind and a scorching sun. He chose to be born in a lowly manner, in a lowly place to a lowly family for you and for me in the person of Jesus. He identified with us by growing up in an average home and by walking the streets with the common man, hung out with fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners, even allowed himself to be identified with the lowliest of criminals, allowed himself to be punished and executed with them. He died a painful death on a shameful cross. The sins which, which separated man from God were paid for by Christ at Calvary. That's the extent that God has gone to for us. That's the extent he has gone to, to be known and worshipped. And the question for you today is simply this. How are you going to respond to him? I pray if you have not, you would respond today by forsaking your sin and making Christ Lord of your life. Do it today and be saved. Let's pray.